1: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Science, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Galina Limorenko, doctoral candidate in neuroscience with a focus on biochemistry and molecular biology of neurodegenerative diseases at the PFL in Switzerland, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Carrie Crawford and Leah Witzer about their new book, The PhD Parenthood Trap, Caught Between Work and Family in Academia. What's it really like to be a parent in the world of higher education and how academia can make this hard climb a little less steep? Academia has a big problem. For many parents, especially mothers, the idea of work-life balance is a work-life myth. Parents and caregivers work harder than ever to grow and thrive in their careers while juggling the additional responsibilities that accompany parenthood. The PhD Parenthood Trap provides scholars, academic mentors, and university administrators with empirical evidence and steps to break down personal and structural barriers between parenthood and scholarly careers. Well, Kerry, Leah, welcome to the show.
0: Thank Thank you for having us. Thank you for having us.
1: Oh, it's really great to have you here with us today. So, as we have witnessed the unprecedented times of the recent global pandemic, and uh, we're still in the middle of it, but hopefully towards uh, towards the end already. So, I was wondering if you could start by reflecting on how has it affected you and your work, and maybe some main takeaways that you have gathered from this experience. And we're going to start with Carrie.
2: I think the biggest takeaway, you know, that that I've um come up with in, in reflecting back on the past 18 months is just to, to be flexible with myself, my children, uh, with work to the extent possible, um, because the, the pandemic has really kind of forced that, that mindset, um, at least on my family and, and I suspect for others as well. Um, and, you know, the idea is that we can't always predict what's going to happen next, especially with young children at home. Um, So once everything switched to virtual work, virtual teaching, and the the kids were home from school and daycare, that flexibility was really essential to just making it through each day um, without a clear end to the pandemic in sight. I'm taking that mindset into the fall semester. My university is back in person. My children are back in school and daycare, but of course, they're all too young to be vaccinated. So we never know when we're going to get a call that somebody um, has been exposed, needs to quarantine. So I'm just trying to repeat that word flexibility to myself. And, um, Mm. you know, eventually it it maybe will get easier. That's the hope. And Leah?
0: Um, Well, I just want to echo so much of what Carrie just said. It it really goes for me as well. My children are both also too young to be vaccinated. And we are just back in school this week after two weeks out for quarantine um, because my seven-year-old tested positive. So I think for me, the, I mean, flexibility, um, has, has just being able to, to roll with it and, you know, okay, whatever comes up today, we're going to deal with it. But personally, I feel like I've been scraping the bottom of the barrel and, you know, at the end of the, the, end of the school year, beginning of the summer, you know, I told my husband, I feel like I've run out of tricks, um, and gimmicks and I don't know how to, you know, to keep the kids entertained and to get back on track. And um, and so <laughs> lo and behold, um, one of the academic Facebook groups that we're a part of, um, somebody suggested this book, Burnout, and I'm like 20 pages into it. And already <laughs> I feel like I've got a new lease on <laughs> family <laughs> and, um, and everything. Um, you know, I, I just feel like so many people have done, you know, all of the jobs at the same time, under the same roof for the past 18 months. And, you know, very few people have been so um, so open in public as um, Carrie and I have, and, and a few other people about how cautious we've been during the pandemic. I mean, I've watched so many other families, you know, doing lots of things that I consider high risk. Um, and, you know, it's been hard um, to be to feel so isolated. Um, but the, um, you know, help is on the way the pediatric vaccine is coming. And um, I think that that things are going to resolve, um, you know, socially and academically, and, you know, just re- regaining some sort of balance. I mean, I certainly have not felt like I've had any balance um, recently. so. I'm, I'm looking forward to um, to the end of the pandemic.
2: <laughs> that is true. Yeah. And we talked before the pandemic about work-life myth instead of work-life balance. And yeah. that, that's really been true. Um, and to echo Leah, I read somewhere recently this week, you know, the COVID cavalry is on the way or, or they're here. Uh, and so I feel like each day it's just a matter of I just need to get my kids, you know, through this just a couple more weeks, um, at least for my oldest until a pediatric vaccine is here. And then maybe we could have a, some semblance of a return to a new normal, perhaps. I'm, I'm not sure that I like the idea of return to normal, but right. um return to less worry might be a way to say it.
0: Right. Or, I mean, for me, I feel like it's just been, um I've been laughing about the perpetual motion machine, you know, where you drop a cat with a piece of toast strapped to its back, butter side up, and like, neither one's never going to, it's not going to keep, Fitting because cats always land on its feet and toast always lands butter side down. Um, and I feel like it's been that with hypervigilance and overstimulation like, you know, for the last 18 months. Um, and I'm looking forward to not being on and on guard and constantly planning for what possible next shoe is going to drop. Um, and you know what? I mean, we've had it. we've had it so good. I mean, there's so many people that have struggled um in many different and more tangible ways and and you know it's not the hardship olympics but um i know that it's hard for everybody but you know in academia we do have a lot more flexibility with our work um than other people do so i'm grateful for that but it's also been hard
1: Yes, for sure. And I really appreciate your honesty about uh, all of these uh, of things. And uh, I suppose uh, the hardships that you mentioned, uh, many people will uh, really resonate with that. Okay, so can we learn a little bit more about yourselves? Yes, absolutely. Leah, um, would you like to start?
2: Sure.
0: Um, so I grew up in the Midwest and... Um, uh, in a farm family and um, I'm not a first-generation academic but I, I feel like the hidden curriculum and the just the way things are done um, in academia has never been straightforward for me um, so um, I have my undergraduate degrees in linguistics um, my PhD is in political science and so the, the work that I do is somewhere in between language and politics um, um yeah i don't know about um how much more detail you want about background
1: <laughs> so how did you get interested in that
0: um in language and politics mm-hmm. um i get interested in language and pol- i mean i've always been fascinated by language and i have always learned languages really easily and i've always been interested in politics and so this is just kind of a natural extension of that um i think There's kind of an overarching theme um, in the more substantive like language and politics work of using language to uncover um, political processes in places where it's hard to observe what's really going on underneath the hood. Mm. Um, And I think that that's really a thread, too, in um, the PhD parenthood trap, is that we're trying to expose what's going on underneath the hood for parents um, in academia as well. Um, So... You know, it's also a substantive work, but it's not. Um, you know, it's just a different area of, of what I do.
2: And Carrie, so I um, I am a first gen college graduate. Um, so I you know I came into college um, you know uh, um, optimistic about you know the chance to get to learn anything that you want to learn. Uh, and you know I actually came in as a music major, uh, ended up getting my bachelor's in political science because. I started college um, just as, you know, just about everything in the United States was getting securitized after September 11th, 2001. Um, and so I started to get interested in, well, you know, how do we understand, um, how do we seek to understand these changes in security in the world? And uh, I switched from music to political science after taking some political science classes and realizing, you know, maybe this is one way to get those answers or at least ask more questions. Um, and then I went on um, at the advice of of some um, amazing mentors that I had in my my college who said, you know, instead of law school, you should consider getting a PhD because mm. we really don't think you'll be happy in law school. Basically, because you have too many questions um, and you don't <laughs> like to just, you know, hear you know the textbook answers. Um, so they they said steer away from law school because that's what I was planning to do at the time uh, and and get your doctorate. And so I thought, you know, that actually sounds like great advice and and did that and of course once again found that there is that hidden curriculum to graduate school as well and you know fortunately i I was lucky to find really generous mentors who who are generous with their time and and with opportunities and that's another thread in our book is that um, some of us are lucky and we find mentors who who help us figure out the way forward um but but your success in academia shouldn't depend on the good fortune of finding those generous mentors, um, that, that that information should be out there for everyone um, on how to succeed. And then um, I had a thesis baby. So my first child was born as I was working through my dissertation and actually you know, broke all the rules and, and went on the job market while pregnant. Um, I, I did, again, get pretty lucky and got a tenure track job. And, um, I've, I've been there since at James Madison university. This is my eighth year teaching.
1: And Leah, what roles did mentors play in your career journey?
0: Um, so I wasn't a very good undergraduate student. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I had really wanted to take a gap year. And so I just kind of took a gap college, um, and. (laughs) 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 <laughs> <laughs> um, and then like a gap 15 years between undergraduate or, you know, or so 10 years between undergraduate and starting my PhD um, so you know I really found the good mentorship in my graduate program um, you know Carrie and I met at a um, conference called Journeys in World Politics that Sarah Mitchell and Kelly Kadera at the University of Iowa, um, co host, co sponsor. And um, I mean, that was back in 2011. You know, this is going to be our 10 year anniversary right. in <laughs> November. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and yeah, the, it was totally theoretical to me at that point. I mean, I remember Skyping with my husband that night and being like, I don't belong here. These folks are smart. They understand how to do things and I don't know what I'm doing here. Like, I think I need to quit academia. He's like, maybe just see it through, you know, (laughs) Um, between Carrie and me, we always joke that I'm the hold my earrings person and she's the hold your horses person. And so I'm really glad that I took his advice and just kind of saw it through because um, Journeys really, I mean, it connected me with Carrie. Um, It connected me with this whole literature and research on how academia is structured unfairly um, for women um, and what we can do about it. Um, And so, you know, what, what Carrie and I realized is that there's all these real high-level processes that have been well quantified in, um, you know, in social science about how many women get tenure and promoted and um, uh, disparity in salaries and and things like that. But there's been no discussion or measurement of the underlying factors that lead to those. So kind of the lower-level processes that contribute to um, what people call the leaky pipeline, but what Carrie and I call the game of shoots and ladders, we don't think it's a very apt metaphor. Um, the, the, life is not one linear pipeline, right? And women just don't leak accidentally out of it. Mm. Um, and also like after you've had kids, like leaking <laughs> means a whole different thing too, right? Um, so, you know, I, um, I was in a non-tenure track position for many years. Um, After graduate school, I had two babies in under two years, um, you know, while on the job market and managing um, an externally funded DOD research grant. Um, And it it took me until this year to be tenured and promoted. So that's one of the things that happened to me during the pandemic. Um, So, yeah, the, the role of mentorship has just been about showing where the ladders are. Um, and other people showing me where the ladders are and there's, um, and, and how to sidestep the shoots and where those are too. Um, and, you know, there's, there's lots of specific, um, specific examples, um, that I can think of where that's been really useful, whether it's, you know, how to write a grant application or how to write a good letter of recommendation or just things like that, that, um. That people don't teach you in graduate school
1: yet so your latest book is the phd parenthood trap so can you tell us how did you come around to collaboration on it
2: um well i remember this was um a process that was probably a long time in the making um i had sent Leah a message, you know, what is it like to have more than one child as a parent in academia? Um, As we were thinking about having a second, which ironically uh, turned into a second and a third when we had twins. Um, So I had messaged Leah and she said, you know, this is a conversation for a bottle of wine. Uh, Because, you know, it's being a parent in, in academia is just I, I want to say it's a balancing act, but nothing is really ever balanced, right? It's just the process of trying to balance things one at a time. Um, so we had that initial conversation, and then um I was doing a a town hall for the International Studies Association um in a role as um, doing some professional development work with them. And a graduate student came up to me afterwards, and she mentioned, you know, I heard that you said you had a, a baby in graduate school and I just want to know if that was an accident or or if you had actually planned to. And I, I was kind of taken aback. Mm. back. Um, but she said, you know, no, no, it, it's just that nobody in my department, even the faculty, no, none of the women have children. And, you know, definitely none of the grad students. And, you know, I, I either texted Leah or met up with her later at the conference. I can't remember at this point because it's been several years. And I said, you know, I think we need to write a book about this. Um, because it, it's so clear that the messaging around being a parent as an academic is just so flawed. You know, there obviously it, it can be difficult to be any kind of professional and to be a parent. Um, there's there's always going to be compromises and, and trade offs, but we have this notion in academia that you can either have a family or have a successful career, and you know, to me, that just didn't seem to be. True. And it's definitely not something that I feel like we should be teaching graduate students or undergraduate students, especially if we want to retain promising scholars. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, we started to have a series of conversations and then we began the formal research on this after deciding, you know, we really do need to write this book. Yeah. So it was a very organic process.
1: Yes. So why is there a trap between academia and (laughs) Barred Hood?
0: Well, so I think that the that women in academia face, um, what's called the double bind that, you know, women world leaders or, you know, women in the workplace anywhere face that we have these prescribed, um, social gender norms where women are supposed to be nice and compliant and, um, cooperative and supportive. Um, but they're not supposed to be assertive or certainly aggressive or, um, and they're rewarded for their feminine qualities and penalized for their masculine qualities. Um, whereas men are expected to be aggressive and assertive and they're rewarded for that, but then they're also rewarded for being kind and compassionate and, Oh, look how cute isn't it? You know, so-and-so, you know, Dr. Mr. So-and-so brought his kids to the faculty meeting. Mm. Um, so things that are, um, Viewed as unprofessional for women are viewed as adorable for men, <laughs> um, and you know that it's it's much bigger than that though. I mean, those are, are kind of trite examples. Um, the to be successful in academia if you're a woman means oftentimes to be in the early stages of your career at the exact same time um, biologically as. Um, you know, the, the ideal time for having kids. Um, and as women have children later and later, um, in life, you know, these, these times overlap and academia is unique in the way that the first, um, generally six years of probationary tenure period. Um, that's the time that, you know, it's a make or break. Um, and so, uh, you know, some of the innovations have been things like extension of the tenure clock, Um, but even doing that um, unfortunately sends bad signals that you're not on track. Um, So solutions that are intended to help often um, backfire. And so how do we level the playing field so that um, women can succeed and work their way up through academia and that's just the tenure track faculty i mean being contingent faculty for many years myself that's been a real um uh, key area of focus because you know the job market is abysmal and there's way more talented um scholars out there than there are jobs um, the majority of the jobs are adjunct or assistant um, visiting assistant professors or instructorships with heavy teaching loads and low salaries and high service expectations and just not conducive to, um, um, to pivoting into a tenure track role. Um, so how do we, given all of these professional demands and constraints, how do we get more women from undergraduate through graduate to junior then senior faculty and then eventually into administration because that's where the, the big decisions are made.
1: You made a very uh, interesting and important point that different populations of people in academia can be held to different standards, for example, women versus uh, uh, men. And bridging this gap and understanding it's uh, really important, isn't it?
0: Yeah. And and, you know what? One of the things we found, we surveyed more than 300 people. Um, It was a a 100 question survey that um, they all very generously filled out for us to help us understand the landscape of um, gender and family formation in academia, gender and bias in family formation in academia. Um, And one of the things that we found is that it really is about gender because some of the, not very many men um, completed the survey, but those who did said that they faced similar penalties for being active parents or what we call at our house, the primary parent. like who's ever on that day. Like if one of us has got a deadline, I'm, you know, if if my husband's got a deadline, I'm the primary parent that day. You know, Mm. I, I carry the load. I, you know, do the meal prep, whatever. Um, sometimes it's team Leah, sometimes it's team Alistair. Right. And so these, these are the dads, um, when it's, um, their spouse's time to be, you know, team other spouse, and they're picking up the kids or having to leave early or having to juggle, um, you know, faculty meetings with daycare pickup and things like that, they reported that they felt similar bias to what they would imagine women experience. And so, um, you know, it's it's led us in a, in a bunch of different directions about how to, um, to engage more men as mentors and how this um, primarily affects women, but it really is about gendered expectations um, for what people should be doing, you know, for those of us who have young children.
1: So the notion of work-life balance um, is really pervasive um, in a world of work, of not even just in academia, but can you describe how does it apply uh, to academic uh, parents?
2: Yeah, and so I think, you know, one of the things that, that Leah mentioned earlier in talking about the pandemic is... You know, for many academics, and, and not all, but for, for many, um, we do have the flexibility to, in, in some sense and to some extent, to structure our schedules in a way that, that works uh, for us and, you know, for those of us with families, for, for you know, those obligations. Um, and so I think, you know, in some sense, we can lose kind of the work-life boundaries that are healthy. Um, Because, you know, say I so, for example, in order to minimize some risk to my kids, I drop my son off at school this semester instead of having him take the bus, which means I leave 20 minutes later because drop off is later than the bus pickup, which means I get my daughters to daycare 20 minutes later. And then I commute to my campus an hour away. And so that's about two hours in the car each way and and I kind of lose that time during the day and so I make up for it at night after the children go to bed. And so you know the whole pandemic I've joked about having my evening shift uh, when I finish all the work they didn't do during mm-hmm. the day. And you know so in some ways that that's a privilege because we can still do our jobs while also, you know, fulfilling our obligations as parents or you know for for people who are caregivers for elders um, they might face similar constraints with scheduling. And so that that is a good thing professionally that that we can still meet those obligations at, at different time periods. Um but you know in terms of uh, well-being, it's probably not the best thing in the long run. You know there there are definitely some advantages to clocking out at five pm and not thinking about work again until the next morning. And so, you know, that unstructured time that we sometimes have in academia uh, can be a blessing and a curse. And so, I think that that can contribute to just kind of um, an enduring cycle of just always being on, whether you're on as the primary parent or you're on as the instructional faculty member who's responding to emails at, you know, 11 o'clock at night. And so, again, it's that work life balance. Often feels just unattainable um, because there it's a static notion, right? That that everything will be in balance um, when, in fact, what we're doing is kind of always striving to just keep everything going, make sure everyone's healthy, uh, make sure that work obligations are met, um, and at some point maybe also take care of ourselves, although that often always comes last. So, mm-hmm. you know, I, we, we often question the work-life balance, um, bumper sticker, I guess we could call it. Right. It's really more just a continuing process. Just every day you're working to keep things going.
0: We have t-shirts that say work-life myth.
2: <laughs> we do.
0: <laughs> <laughs> we wore that to one of our first conference presentations. Um, I just want to echo what Carrie said about work-life boundaries, um, and, um, the unstructured time. So I have this catchphrase that I call the tyranny of unstructured time, where it's um, if you sit down and well, you think, okay, well, I can't get anything done unless I've got a a long stretch of time. And then you get a long stretch of time and you don't get anything accomplished because you don't have boundaries or structure um, or goals or deliverables or, or whatever. And I think that it comes from the the real um masculine model of academia which we can think of as kind of the nutty professor um that old movie of just working idiosyncratically and you know working all night and or late into the day or whatever um mm-hmm. and that is not the modern model of academia the the modern model of academia is structured and goal driven and um uh respectful of boundaries and you know i don't know why anyone would want to replicate such an inefficient system like when i started before the pandemic um when i started um not working evenings or weekends i found that my productivity vastly improved um because you get this like i'll do it later or i'll get distracted by something because i can make up time for it later and so you know the first year or so of the pandemic. Um, was like maximum efficiency all the time. You know, it was like a well-oiled machine. I was super productive at work. I was teaching kindergarten. I was, you know, getting stuff out the door. I was making dinners and taking kids to the park and handing out, you know, daily prizes from the dollar store. And, you know, it was, things were smooth. And then the end of the school year hit and it was like the tyranny of unstructured time. Like, what do Mm -hmm. I do now? But also like, Burnout from maximum efficiency for so long, um, and so I think this the work life balance. Um, I don't know. Maybe the next book is the work life myth because um, it's there's no balance. Like it's the, the balance is structuring your time. The balance is running your academic life in a more efficient way. Because I don't want to miss out on my kids. I don't want to feel resentful about you know, having work to do when I want to be with them or being with them and knowing that I've got deadlines that I'm not meeting um, for work. I want to be happy at work. I and mean, I think that's one of the perks of academia is that you get to do what you love. Um, and one of the perks about parenting, at least in my situation, is that I get to be with who I love, you know, so like it's love 24-7, 365. Mm-hmm all the time it's perfect (laughs) (laughs) kidding um no but it's having the structure is so important
1: so in the phd parenthood trap you're already busting several of those myths and you cover quite a few very important topics so what uh topics are there in the book and can you describe a couple of them that uh interest you the most
2: oh that's tough to pick (laughs) um (laughs) You know, there's a reason that our our survey ended up having 100 questions on it. Because as we started writing these survey questions, it just led to more. There are just so many myths to bust, essentially. Mm -hmm. There are so many things that we don't talk about in academia because we don't like to consider that we're people uh, who have lives and who have bodies, who have responsibilities off campus. Um, You know, for me, I think, my maybe if I had to choose a favorite chapter, it would probably be the thesis baby chapter, chapter two, um, because, you know, like I said, I, I was so lucky to have supportive mentors in graduate school. And I was really afraid for, for months um, to tell them that I was pregnant. And, you know, being a first pregnancy, I was able to hide it for a good long time, uh, about the first like four or five months and you know i was just dreading telling them because i had heard these horror stories of you know faculty mm-hmm. who don't think you're taking the phd seriously if you you know have children and you know when i told the the first committee member you know he he jumped up and said oh that's so exciting and you know uh, you know this is wonderful and then, oh, wow. when i told when i told the second mentor she said I get the sense that you feel like you need to apologize and I'm not sure why that is. And, you know, they, they were all just so thrilled. And I thought, you know, this, these are not the stories that we're telling. These are not the stories we're hearing. And so the thesis baby chapter, you know, gets that, we need to be more supportive of graduate students and there are those faculty out there. Um, And in fact, I had written a, a vignette for that chapter. We ended up cutting it because the chapter was too long Um, but, but basically I think we need more discussion of, there are people who are out there doing it right and being supportive of their graduate students and, Mm -hmm. you know, not just their graduate students that are parents, but of their graduate students that have other aspects of life outside of academia that demand their attention. And we need more people like that. We need systemic change that is just more supportive of our graduate students or else we lose really promising scholars.
0: Yes. All of the yes, to that. but you're absolutely um, right that
1: guess... it's really important to hear the positives as well, isn't it? The success stories and have this maybe maybe not a template, but at least a model to follow uh, for
2: others to follow. I, I think so, or at least inspiration, or in the sense that it's not all bad. Mm-hmm. I think, um, but but I'm wondering, Leah might have a different take on a favorite <laughs> chapter. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yes. And also, I'm going to throw a wet blanket over your happy story <laughs> too, Carrie, because um, I mean, part of what makes it a good story is that you had, you know, individually supportive faculty members. But, right. you know, and in that sense, the system worked for you. But I mean, that's part of the story of the PhD parenthood trap is that you shouldn't have to just get lucky. Exactly. You know? That, you know, it is it's, it is important um, to tell the stories that things do work out okay, um, because if nobody if if the only advice um, young women on the on the job market or in graduate school or junior faculty are hearing is don't dare have a baby before you're tenured, um, that's terrible advice. And so more people need to be telling you know good stories like Carrie's. Um, but the other part of that is that we have to improve the structures within academia. You know, one of the things that that we write about is having um, transparent and equitably applied policies at the university. One of the big findings in the survey was that so many people don't know what their departmental or college level or university level policies are regarding FMLA, the Family Medical Leave Act, or um, parental leave if your university has paid parental leave, or even bereavement. Um, you know, for, we've got one of the chapters is love and loss um, about um, pregnancy and, and infant loss. And um, there's some universities that have got, that, that you can apply for a bereavement leave or take bereavement leave. Um, you know, we know colleagues that have had to have, um, that have had miscarriages and have had to have um, DNC surgery. And, you know, they show up at work the next day, you know, because there's no, um, uh, no medical leave for that kind of private Mm. event. Um, so, um, I I think I've got, um, between the, the sick and tired and the love and loss, I think that that's where a lot of the structural change can happen. And also where more of the untold stories are because, um, you know, what we really wanted to do with the book was to show the the lower level processes that lead to the higher level outcomes that are already well measured and well documented. Um, but things like um, being sick, um, you know, people who um, who have young children probably get all of the colds and all of the illnesses and all of the everything that they get. I mean, I was sick for years and just could not shake you know, mono and strep and RSV. And I mean, I literally got everything that the kids got. I mean, people would joke and ask my husband, how's your wife? And he would say, Riley, um, never better. <laughs> 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 like literally, I was never better. Um, and so and I think part of that was just stress, too, Um but the, the sickness, um, you know, some people experience terrible morning sickness, um, which, you know, for me was like all day sickness well into my second trimester with both children. And that really affects your um, your efficiency and your, you know, capacity to work and to think. I mean, pregnancy brain is a thing, Um there's so many women who experience infertility or go through fertility treatments, and these are things that people don't often share either. And so they might have months or years of, you know, hormone shots and the roller coaster up and down of um, IVF and just all these very private struggles that affect their well being and their their capacity to work. Um, and you know, in academia, we're paid for our brains and. Um, it's really hard sometimes to construct a coherent thought when you're incredibly sleep deprived. Um, I mean, I remember after my second child, so after my, my second daughter was born, I had her on a Thursday, came home on Friday, and I was back at work on Monday. And oh, wow. that is insane. That is, abs- I would never, I, I wouldn't let myself do that again. And I remember standing up in front of the class. I taught an evening class that was three hours um, uh, in the evenings, and somebody asked a question, and I closed my eyes to think about the answer, and I fell asleep standing up. Oh no! (laughs) (laughs) And like jolted myself back to it. But like, parenting is hard, and we're not meant to parent alone. Like, you know, I have a friend who just gave birth this week, and. You know, we were joking that like postpartum healthcare is Dr. Google and, you know, whatever friend networks that you can cobble together. Um, academic parents need help. We're <laughs> friends and family say, oh, just get a job close to home, right? Like, mm-hmm. just get a job is a hard enough task, much less having control over where you live. Um, you know, and, and we don't have those, those built-in support networks of drop the kids off at the grandparents or have grandparents pick up the kids after school or run them to after school activities or things like that. Like, we have to insource everything that we do for the most part. Um, so, yeah, the, the sick and tired and the love and loss chapters, I think, are really poignant um, because they show a lot of the, the private struggles that people don't talk about um, that lead to or that help explain reduced productivity Um, and they're they're uncomfortable and they're a little bit messy but it's also important to hear those stories.
1: So what kind of university policies are there in place to help uh, uh, parents in academia
2: and what you would uh, sort of want to see in the future? Well I think the big problem that we seek to address in starting this conversation with our book is that there aren't consistent university policies. Mm. And so the extent to which academic parents or caregivers have support depends heavily on not only their university's particular policies, but also sometimes their individual department's policies or norms. So, you know, for instance, at, at my university, there is some variation across departments when it comes to what parental leave looks like. And, you know, there's, of course, variation across countries too. Um, here in the U.S., we don't have paid parental leave. We have um, Family and Medical Leave Act protection, but that is unpaid leave. It just means that your job is there when you come back, but your salary won't necessarily be there while you're out. And so depending on the university depending even on the department, the, the policies to support parents, caregivers um, may be severely lacking. And so that's why we call for clearly communicated, equitable, transparent policies um, within departments, within universities, um, simply because, you know, speaking from the US perspective, this is not guaranteed at a national level, and so universities need to step up and do their part to provide that protection. Because again, it all comes back to if universities want to have um, diversity, equity, and inclusion, and, and to have their professors look like the the population at large, they need to do more to retain faculty um, by supporting them as as whole people. So, you know, we would like to see more supportive parental leave policies. We would like to see that those are easy to find, you know, that you can find out what your policy is at your university, that you can expect that the university's policy will also be your department's policy, um, that you know supervisors are applying these equitably. Because as as some of our vignette contributors discuss, um, the accommodations that people get often vary. So one of our vignette contributors who is a woman who gave birth, mentions that you know she had an accommodation that was much less supportive than her colleague who was a, a man whose wife gave birth. He hmm. e- effectively got actual parental leave, whereas she did not. And um, these stories are not uncommon. So I, I think the, the biggest thing is, is consistency and equity in how policies are, are created and applied and communicated.
0: Yeah, in, in our stories, in this book, um, I think one of the, the big points we wanted to make is that these are not anomalies. These are not outliers, that this is what most women experience in academia and what most parents experience in academia. It's just that nobody talks about it. Um, one of the things that uh, unfortunately, Um, happens uh, for people taking um, sick leave, or if there's no paid parental leave, um, women are forced to use their sick leave for maternity leave. Um, Mm. And so then, you know, that's all good and well, you can probably build it back up over time. But say what happens if there's a global pandemic, and you need sick leave, right? You've got I don't know, 6 weeks less sick leave or however long you took than do your male counterparts, right? Um so there's structural inequalities. Um I mean, who could have foreseen a global pandemic like this? I mean, maybe some people could have, but um you know, it was, certainly was not on my bingo card for last year. Um mm-hmm. but the the kind of underlying support for women versus men, um you know, women who give birth are going to have fewer sick days, probably, than our men. I mean, I think that would be a fantastic and and really interesting thing to study.
1: I'm really glad that you uh, mentioned uh, this issue of uh, parental leave, maternal and paternal as well. I used to work in Sweden and they have very generous, uh, uh, both uh, parental leaves, which can be uh, up and up, um up to one year i think at the, at the moment i think that's i think that sounds right yes but another important important thing is that when you come back you are supposed to come back to the same position or equivalent and do you think that this can also be an issue that when women come back from their leaves their position might be filled, filled so they don't really have anywhere to come back or they lose their tenure track
2: I've heard that, you know, there are also concerns that people get mommy tracked. So Mm -hmm. in hiring, you're Mm -hmm. going to be worried that, okay, this is a young woman. Um, I'm going to assume at some point she's going to get pregnant and then she's going to require a year of leave. And so I'm going to put her in a position that's not necessarily essential. Um, You know, this is outside of my area of expertise, but anecdotally, I've, I've heard that from colleagues that while really supportive parental leave policies are create of course uh, they have a, the potential to create a more equitable workforce Um they also have the potential to create kind of different tracks for men and for women and of course that lays aside the fact that you know dads need support too you know dads need parental leave so that they can be active parents so that they can um, support their partners who have given birth and you know of course um, when we're thinking about um, same-sex households and same-sex parents, uh, the the complexities um, are, are there as well, that, you know, the non-birth parent also needs support, and needs leave so that they can be active in um, supporting that family, getting to know a new child, um, taking care of a partner if that partner has given birth, and so on. These are important considerations, but they, they do have, um, you know, implications that maybe your job isn't there later when you come back if you have mm. long-term leave and obviously that's a concern and, and a problem.
0: I think some of the um, the underhanded punishments or I mean I don't know I can't think of a case when someone has lost a tenure track position I mean maybe um, being denied tenure could be um, considered losing your job you know if Family formation has affected your productivity, but I mean, that's being in a tenure track position is a contractual um, issue. What I think um, happens frequently is um, microaggressions and um, uh, individual level penalties. So one of our vignette contributors talked about being written out of um, a major project that she had worked on up until the time that um, she gave birth. And so something that should have been a major line on her CV was made absolutely invisible. Um, you know, the, some of the other issues are, uh, you know, what people might consider helpful individual level hacks, like, um, you know, reduced course load or increased service load or, or things like that actually don't benefit women in the long run. And the, um, so Women are much more likely to take on service assignments that benefit the academic family, Um, and um, things like um, departmental committees or low-profile university-level committees, rather than high-profile professional um, um, service assignments or service responsibilities. And so, um, in trying to maybe lighten the load or accommodate, uh, you know, women. during family leave or an extended family leave, giving them um, kind of easier service assignments may not be as beneficial um, because it doesn't do anything for their career, right? It might buy them some time um, at home, but so would uh, paid parental leave. Um, you know, and and on the issue of paid parental leave, women, um, the vast majority of women are not misusing their maternity leave right they're not um doubling down you know during midnight feedings and making progress on you know their next top tier journal article whereas um, Mm. it's well documented that men leverage parental leave to publish um or to go on the job market and move up um, you know vertical moves from one institution to another so you know Equitably applied means if you are a non-birth parent and you take parental leave, use it to parent and not to um, advance your career, right? Um, right? Use it for what it's
1: intended for. So thinking about wider wider picture. So how do you see this discussion uh, surrounding career and parenting, especially in academia? being discussed and brought forwards is uh, the way uh, is it improving are people more attuned to it now
2: well one of the things we found very promising in doing our survey work was that people noted a sense that their departments or their institutions supportive policies had improved over time and so that gave us some reason for optimism and, you know, certainly, anecdotally, looking at my university, that's been the case. Where you know, parental leave is is actually parental leave for for both parents now, where before it was maternity leave. And so, you know, as as Leah noted, there are consequences, there are negative implications when people misuse their their parental leave if they're the non birth parent and they're publishing or going on the job market. But the other side of that coin is, we need parental leave for for both parents. If we're going to lose that sense of the the mommy track, where women get secondary positions because it's assumed they're going to take time off to have babies, so if everybody is taking time off for their babies, then you know it's not the mom penalty. Um, so that you know, there have been some improvements, and there's a sense of improvement. I think we're hoping that this book starts a conversation. That that it will make waves, um, that it will make some people in positions of decision making uncomfortable when they look at their own policies mm-hmm. and practices, and that that will lead them to create change. Because while there has been change and there have been improvements, that has been slow and it has been uneven.
0: And so much of the changes in the attention to issue, issues of gender and bias and family formation have been raised by women for women. And so much of the mentorship has been by women for women. And, uh, you know, in the last couple of years, Carrie and I have started to embrace more widely the idea that everybody should be involved in good mentorship and in these policies, if for no other reason that, you know, the majority of people in power in academia are men. And so they need to be on board with this as well. So we have this kind of catchphrase of young, woken, and tenured, um, that there are these men in the middle who have tenure, who understand these issues, who may have faced some of these issues themselves or um, have wives or co-authors or colleagues um, that they have witnessed experiencing these issues. And they can really, they, they pay this pivotal, um, pivotal kind of fulcrum point um, in the process where they can both speak to, um, you know, maybe older tenured faculty or administrators um, who are more comfortable with the historical way that academia has operated. And also um, be uh, uh, agents of, of culture change for younger faculty, for junior faculty, for graduate students. Um, so the the um, the men in the middle and men tourship, where um, you know men learn how to write less gender biased letters of recommendation or. Um, you know, the Society for Political Methodology has um, instituted a rule where in the question and answer period, women are called on first. Mm -hmm. Um, Because that's um, been demonstrated that the the research shows that um, when you call on women first, that women and men tend to participate in question and answer periods or... um, um, Class discussions at relatively equal rates, whereas if you call on a man first, um, it has a chilling effect on women participating, um, and they don't participate at the same rates. Women participate far less. Um, so there, there are structural solutions, um, but everybody has to be on board. And I think that men have counted themselves out, maybe as a part of the conversation because they don't want to be seen as as mansplaining or that this is not a space for them. And in some ways, you know mentorship by women for women is still needed because there are things that, you know, men may not be able to physiologically understand, um, or logistically understand. And, and, um, you know, the, the balance of, um, especially infancy and work. Um, but they, they certainly play an important role. I mean, men are, are a really important part of the equation and, and, we need men as allies
1: um, in this conversation. So what discoveries about yourself and society along your journey to writing your book, The PhD Parenthood Trap, surprised you the most? That's a great question. (laughs) question.
2: (laughs) I think for me, it was, I think I've been surprised by my comfort in speaking out Um, about institutional flaws in our profession. Um, I think, you know, we started this work before I had tenure, but we started publishing pieces of it after I had tenure. And I think if I had started this before tenure, I maybe would have been more hesitant. Um, But that job security, and it's a little bit harder to get rid of me now,
1: um, (laughs)
2: has, has made it easier to speak out and to say, you know, what... A lot of what we're doing here is flawed and we need to do better. And um, I think it has helped me to, to, to be more comfortable speaking out uh, specifically about my profession. I haven't had much problem speaking out about other things in the past. Um, but when it comes to your job, it's a little tougher. And, you know, I think that any of us in the profession who have job security have an obligation. To recognize when there are flaws that are creating inequities, and to speak out about those. Yeah, I don't think
0: that it makes you harder to get rid of, Carrie. I think it makes you more desirable <laughs> to
2: keep. Right, right.
0: <laughs> there, there's my, there's my sunshine happiness for the, <laughs> for the interview. Um, you know, I think, um, I had this moment. I don't know. Sometime in the last decade or so ago, right after Carrie and I, right around the time that Carrie and I started um, thinking seriously about writing this book um, about the First Wives Club, um, that you know, now older movie, I guess, um, <laughs> with Goldie Hawn and Bette Midler and um, who's the other one? Um, anyway, you know which one I'm talking about. Anyway, that, yeah. so that all the women are feeling like, you know, what's wrong with us? And you know. Boo hoo hoo. And then they said, okay, so we've had it rough, but you know what? Other people do too. And what can we do to make the world better for everybody? And so I feel like that was a real turning point for me in thinking about like, this is not just my unique misery, this is everyone's. (laughs) So, Mm. (laughs) how is it that we can leverage our stories and our perspective and our understanding of institutions and gender and social change and advocacy and you know all the things that political scientists are supposed to study how do we leverage this knowledge you know with our own stories and other people's stories to create change in our profession um that can maybe be benchmarks for you know creating change elsewhere you know um it's not just about airing our own dirty laundry or you know exposing um systemic flaws just for that for their own sake like it's For a reason, you know, because we can be more humane and also there's going to be better science that comes out of this because people are going to be more efficient and happier and collaborative. Um, So, I mean, ultimately, like it's a a big society win to have academia functioning better and more equitably because we're going to a more diverse faculty population is going to look at problems in new and different ways than um, the received wisdom or the, the canonical texts have. So, you know, it's a win for us because, you know, it's helped us to process the, the individual stories that we've experienced, but it's also a win for everybody.
1: So we already learned about Leah's favorite way to sleep, standing up uh, during uh, (laughs) teaching the class. (laughs) So, can you tell us how much sleep do you usually get and what would be your optimal number of (laughs) cups of coffee per day?
2: Well, so I mentioned that I have twins and they're they're now three and they still don't sleep through the night. Mm. So I think I get up between on an average night, probably one to two times a night. It's better than it used to be. It used to be I got maybe two or three hours of sleep a night. I'd say now it's probably five, five or six hours (laughs) interrupted. And, you know, part of that is because I stay up later than I should. Uh, Because I'm catching up on work and because after I catch up on work, I need some time to do something not work or child related just for me. And so I end up going to bed later than I should. And then, you know, an hour after I fall asleep, my first twin wakes up. Um, So optimal cups of coffee. I'm still only up to one cup of coffee a day. Um, because I was, uh, I got in the habit of of not drinking coffee while I was nursing, and I was uh, nursing my twins up through when I got my COVID vaccine so that they could Mm -hmm. get them, hopefully, some immunity from that. Um, So I was in the habit of being not at all caffeinated throughout most of the pandemic, and I I still don't know how that was possible. But I'm up to one cup of coffee a day, and even that feels like a lot. Sometimes one and a half if I'm really tired. (laughs) I tend to be more of a chocolate person.
0: Um, so the question is hours of sleep
2: and cups of coffee, cups
0: of coffee. (laughs) Um, so my kids are six and seven and they're not great sleepers either. I mean, they're not waking to nurse or anything. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not that parent. (laughs) Um, Although if you are, that's just fine too. Um, get in where you fit in. Um, but god i don't know um i got one of those ura rings to help track um my sleep i'm trying to remember the last time i looked at the data for that um it's often it, just depressing i know right <laughs> um, when it shows like your awakeness cycles um golly i mean i want say... to feel
1: refreshed after your sleep no no. Oh dear. No. <laughs> no.
0: I mean, I don't know how it might be like Sleeping Beauty. Long time that I would need to sleep to feel refreshed. Um, and I, I generally drink, I don't know, maybe two and a half, two and a half cups of coffee a day. I mean, I'll usually start with the one that I didn't finish the day before that I stuck in the refrigerator <laughs> overnight, and then maybe brew another pot of coffee and I've got one of those small ones that makes four cups and so maybe drink half of that I don't know two two cups of coffee today
1: (laughs) well I'm looking forward to somebody coming up with a formula for the academic parent about (laughs) number of sleeping hours two cups of coffee which are optimal right right (laughs) well we've taken up a lot of your time so can you tell us what are you currently working on and what would be your next project?
2: So we are currently working on a few spin-off articles related to the book. And um, so, so that has been a lot of fun to keep that conversation going. We've been studying mentorship during the COVID era and hope to have an article about that coming out soon. And then separately, I am uh, writing a second edition of my book on human security, which is my international relations hat that I normally wear when I'm teaching and doing research. And so that is what's next for me.
0: Um, yeah, uh, we've started brainstorming sort of the next book, um, but that's still, um, you know, very early in, in the brainstorming phases. Um But I'm starting work on um, a National Science Foundation funded um, program um, on multimodal communication. So how all different aspects of signaling, whether it's your voice or um, eye blinks or eye widening or facial expressions, gestures, language, all of those um, work together for like a complete communicative, communicative package.
1: Sounds very exciting. So where can our listeners find more information about your work and also your book?
2: Great question. So on the Georgetown University Press website, you can find our book. And um, we do have a discount code if you buy through the publisher, and that is TPHD. And um, I believe that gives you 30% off, if if hopefully I'm correct about that. Um, And so the Georgetown University Press site, you can order through there. Um, You can also order through other booksellers. But we also have open access pieces that we've published through Medium, through Chatham House, the International Affairs blog, and their Fifty Fifty in Twenty Twenty initiative. Um, we've published some pieces in Perspective on polit- Perspectives on Politics, um, and Duck of Minerva, the International Relations blog. And Leah, am I missing some more?
0: Um, I don't know. Maybe <laughs> <laughs> I, I was going to say. I mean. Whenever we publish something, we generally tweet about
2: it. So um, what's your Twitter, Carrie? Mine is profkfc, P-R-O-F-K-F-C.
0: And mine is at Leah, L-E-A-H-C, Windsor, W-I-N-D-S-O-R. Yeah, I think that that those will have um, all the links to the things. We should, you know, maybe we need a website. (laughs)
2: But Twitter effectively functions as our website, so that is the best Mm. way to find information as we publish it. Yes. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. It
1: has been truly insightful discussion. Thank you so much for your time and for the invitation to talk
0: with you. Yes. Thank you so much for having us. We really appreciate it.